Jesus, you yourself have said right here on this page in your words that whom the Son sets free, that person will be free indeed. That tells us, Lord, that only you can bring the kind of freedom that you're talking about here. Lord, only you can bring the kind of light that makes these words alive and relevant to us this day. Lord, only you know the condition of our lives, the condition of each one of our hearts, and what is needed, most needful, Lord, this day in terms of our relationship with you. Lord, only you know those here that are not yet truly on their way to heaven, but are still on their way to a lost eternity. Lord, only you know those out there listening on the internet who sit in front of their computer this night with an open, hungering heart and know the details of that heart in that room alone. Father, minister to those individuals, minister to all of us as only you can, bringing the freedom that only you can bring. May we go from this time together with you and your word and wonder at the fact that you are such a good, living, and personal God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage in the Gospel of John is a very pivotal one. Jesus, as you know, has been in the area of the temple, and a lot has happened here in this section of John 8. Just in this section alone, we have talked about him being the light of the world. He made that statement here. He made it in the temple area. He has here in front of us the incident with the woman taken in adultery. There is so much that happens really in a very brief span of time chronologically as John is writing. And that's because so much is happening in the words that Jesus is giving us. This passage is pivotal in the understanding of true discipleship as well as true salvation. And I say that because in the mind and the kingdom and the preaching of Jesus Christ, discipleship and salvation, real salvation, are one and the same. They both belong to the same individual. They are never separated in the mind or the teaching of Jesus Christ. Never. So that this passage becomes pivotal because this passage really brings that out in a way that may not be totally obvious to you at first, but it is definitely here. Unless I forget to say it along the way, I would encourage you to read the other three Gospels that John read and reread and read and reread before he wrote his, and then read his again and see if you can identify in Jesus' teaching where he does separate discipleship from simply believing in him and having salvation. I guarantee you, you'll never be able to do it. And that was one of the most astonishing things to me as I began to study the Gospels in great detail. Because personally, in my own mind, I had always separated the two. Salvation is one thing, discipleship is another. Well, maybe on the lips of some and the teaching of some, but never on the lips and teaching of Jesus. Never, ever. That doesn't mean that we don't grow in the discipleship process. But it does mean that if you're a real disciple, you're a real Christian. I think you'll see that as we get into it. Last time as we were studying here, we left off with verse 30. They'd been arguing with him. They'd been insulting him. And he'd been ministering back to them. And he has the religious leaders here. They're in the temple area. So that they're right in the heart of Jerusalem as he speaks to their hearts about the heart of salvation. And as he came to the end of that section that we finished last time, it says, as he spoke these words in verse 30, many believed in him. 
Then we read in verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say that you will be made free? Jesus answered and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. This is an interesting passage because there were so many slaves in those days. Just to look at that idea alone, he speaks of being made free. He speaks of being a slave. In this time of the Roman Empire, so much of the population were slaves. So even to bring up the issue is to get their attention. And Jesus always goes from the known and the familiar to the unknown and the unfamiliar. And he does that here. He uses the analogy of the slave. But in this passage, there is what I would call, as I've entitled the message, the truth that makes you free. There is the progression of freedom. And to speak of freedom in terms of real salvation, real liberation from sin, there is a progression here that he's trying to lead them through. There is also here the pretense of freedom when they said, we've never been in bondage to anybody. That was a sheer pretense. And then there is the promise when he says, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I'd like to begin by looking at this progression. It's it's absolutely critical. And as I said, it may not be obvious to you at first. In verse 30, it says, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. And then it says, then Jesus said to those Jews who notice, the King James says, believed him. Go back again now, read verse 30. It says, many believed in him. Then it says, Jesus spoke to those Jews who, notice it doesn't say believed in him. It says, believed him. There's a subtle revelation here of a difference. It's subtle in the New King James. It is not so subtle in the original. And here you have the difference between two kinds of belief right here in front of us. And Jesus seeks to make that very clear to them. And the idea is that you can believe him and you can also believe on him. And there are two different kinds of belief there. You can just believe him and the Bible is full of people like that. And so you can also believe on him and that is to be saved. Now, the NIV, I know some of you have that. The NIV in John 8:30 says, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. That is good. That's really good. They put their faith in him. And then it says to the Jews who had believed him. There's a contrast there. So in the crowd, and the NIV brings it out by having put your faith in him and then just believing him. In the crowd, you have those that literally do finish off listening to him at that point and really put their trust in him for all that he is, as Lord and Savior. And they enter into eternal life and salvation and discipleship all at once at that point. But there are also those in the crowd who believe him in the sense that they believe his words. There's so much of what he's saying they believe. They're of the order of Judas, you could say. Judas, I think it is very safe to say, 
considering where he ended up from where he began, he obviously believed so much of what Jesus had to say. I mean, why else would a selfish thief continue so long with Jesus Christ, so living so near to him? He obviously believed a tremendous amount of what Jesus had to say. But in the end, it was Judas who came to the garden and pointed him out and with the lowest form of a kiss that was ever given, betrayed him and sent him effectively to his death. So there was an end to the belief of Judas and it obviously was a belief that didn't save him, yet he believed so much. There's a man in the book of Acts, his name is Simon, and he's a sorcerer, he's got great power. And when the guys come along, the apostles preaching the gospel and Philip and all of them, he sees such a work of the Holy Spirit confirming the preaching that this man his whole life is, how can I find my next trick, my next spell, my next source of power to dazzle people and make money off it. That was his whole life. So when he sees all of this power moving in the lives of these great men of God, the Bible says that he heard and he believed. And he even went out and got baptized. And he continues now along with them. But then one day he gets aside with them and he says, how can I buy this power that you have? And at that point we understand exactly why he had been with them all this time. He wanted that power. He wanted to take the power of the Holy Spirit and he wanted to somehow package it. And he would, of course, have turned him into it at that point. And then he wanted to make money off the channeling of this power through his life, just as he had no doubt made money off the channeling of the devil's power through his life. That's not uncommon. When Paul went to Philippi, you remember that his preaching was such that a lady began to shout of his great abilities and how he was really sent from God and she was demon-possessed. He turned around one day and he basically had enough of it and he just said, come out of her. That was the end of it. The demons that inhabited her came out. The problem was that the guys that made the, the idols in that town depended on all the things that she had to say to sell their idols. So immediately he put all of them out of business and thus they sought to kill him because he had ended their great money-making venture. Simon was in that category of life. So when he believed the things about Jesus and then followed them and then basically saw baptism as joining up with them, it was all with the intention of getting this power. But when he said, I want to buy this power, their response was to him, may your money perish with your evil heart. In other words, he was an unsaved man going to perish unless he changed his heart before God. So Judas, Simon, they're great examples of the fact, as these Jews are here in front of Jesus, that you can believe so much that he says. And yet it is not a saving belief. You can believe him. He turns to those that believe him. And you can believe on him. As you see here, there are those in the crowd that believe on him. The difference is monumental. And I think that it takes an event in your life something that God allows to happen to you to show the contrast in your own mind of where you are. A good analogy that I came across is the account of a famous acrobat. He was known all over the world in years gone by. His name was Jean-Francois Gravelet, also known as Blondin. Blondin was born in France in 1824 and he became well known in France while he was still a child, but 
The greatest feat for which he is known that drew the most attention was when he strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls and began to perform over the falls. And what he did was he strung this tightrope over there, was 1,100 feet long. It was 160 feet above the water. And he began to walk across it, got over safely and came back. That just put people in awe. It was unbelievable he could do this. All with the thunderous roar, the spray coming up. If that wasn't great enough, he got himself a wheelbarrow. And this guy got on this tightrope and went across the rope over the falls with his wheelbarrow, pushing it in front of him. On one occasion, he took his wheelbarrow over, and it was getting, you know, old just going over with the wheelbarrow, nothing in it, and coming back. So he thought he'd put something in it. You know what he did? He put the stuff in it to have a little barbecue. So he got out over the Niagara Falls on his tightrope with his wheelbarrow and stopped and had a barbecue, grilled up an omelet, in fact. Once, in an unusual demonstration of skill, Blondin carried a man across Niagara Falls on his back. Then he turned around and carried him back, went all the way over and carried him all the way back. After he had put his rider down, the acrobat turned to the large crowd that had been watching, and he asked a man who was right near at hand, he said, do you believe I could do that with you? You know what the response of the man was? Well, of course, I've just seen you do it with him. Well, hop on, Blondin said, and I'll carry you across. The man answered, not on your life. <laughs> what was the difference between those two men? The one he had just carried across. He obviously believed in such a way as to get on the back of London and go over, and he was taken over and back safely. The other believed that London could do it, but he did not have the kind of belief that would enable him to climb up on his back and go for the journey that would end certainly with his safety. You see, the difference was that one trusted on him and the other just believed what he had to say. And that's what we have here. There are those in the crowd that truly believe on Jesus. And there are those in the crowd that just believe what he has to say. And they make no move, as it were, to get on his back for safe passage over. Jesus seeks to manifest those two kinds of belief. And then, because Jesus came to save, Jesus isn't just some traveling speaker on a circuit trying to sell books. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, He knows the two kinds of belief in the crowd, but because He came to save men, because He cares about you, because He cares about your sin, He cares about what it's done to you, as He did these here, he goes on and he seeks to draw out saving faith. He makes the distinction between having just a belief that doesn't save and then the belief that does, and then he seeks to draw it out of the ones that don't have it. Look at verse 31 of John 8. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Jesus takes notice of their inadequate faith. And what he does is he seeks to encourage it. Now, for one thing, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever read it in that context? We read over the Gospel of John, as I said earlier, many times from our earliest days of our Christian life, often never stopping to look at the details. We are like those who go to the market that are late for another appointment, and we rush through the market throwing in the bare necessities, out through the check stand, into the car, and we're gone never stopping over the years to notice the details of what they have. Gospel of John is like that. The context 
of these great words that we all know so well, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The context is that he said those words to those who only believed him. They were directed to those who had not yet true saving faith. Thus you begin to understand the meaning of disciple on the lips of Jesus Christ. His concern is so great that he stops in this situation, in this circumstance, to begin to really make an effort to draw out of them a deeper faith. And if you're at that place today where you believe about Jesus, you believe many of the things that you know he said, but you've never gotten to the place where you've just laid hold of him to trust him with your whole life, please be encouraged by what happens here. Jesus' concern is so great because he came to save He came to seek and to find the lost and do whatever necessary to bring them home to the Father's house. You see, this faith in these people, it's really intellectual belief is what it is, intellectual assent. But so often, that's where it begins. So often out of that comes real saving faith. So it doesn't always just end there. In some cases it does, but Jesus doesn't want it to. And so he begins to draw them out. And what I see here in Jesus Christ is an incredible personal tenderness. That even as he knows they're believing him, but they're hanging back, rather than just saying, fine, all of those that that have put your trust in me, come on, let's go. It's as if to say, I know who you are, but I don't want to leave here with those in the crowd that could come with us if they'll just pay a little more attention and hear more of what I have to say to their hearts. And if you're in that place today, Jesus loves you and He wants to set you free and He wants to take the time with your heart and He already is and that's why you're here. He shows the concern of one who really cared about them. See, Isaiah had foretold this long before in Isaiah 42.3. Can you turn there in your Bible? Isaiah had spoken of this great concern, care, and love of the Savior. In Isaiah 42.3, it's in Matthew, but Matthew only quotes Isaiah, so I thought I'd take you back to where it came from. In Isaiah 42.3, it says, speaking of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. You see, that is our Savior. He is the one who came to seek and to save all that were lost. He is the expression of a great loving God who is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So that a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. That picture of the smoking flax is what I see is really the picture here in front of us with these people he's addressing. They, they have just this tiniest, little, tiny, you could call it baby faith almost. It isn't even real faith yet. It's just the very beginning of what could become faith. And for those of you that are all scienced out in your theology and you have your theological grid and you're just thinking, oh, all faith comes from God anyhow, and you know why are you making such a big deal out of, of this? Because God saves human beings. And human beings go through a process. And human beings go through a progression of thinking one thing and thinking another and feeling one thing and feeling another. And Jesus is God as a human being. One of the great dangers of working on your theology and getting it all scienced out is you cease to see Jesus as a human being who is an expression of the compassion of God. 
And you can let your theology suck up all your love and suck up all the life and the warmth out of our Savior here. And it all just becomes a scientific, mathematical thing after all. Well, you're sitting here staring at the texts, thinking about only the elect in the crowd. You know, whereas Jesus is staring at human beings whose lives are bombarded by sin. He brings that out in a minute when he calls them slaves of sin. Be careful when you read the Bible that you don't put on your theological glasses that are so refined and leave them there and only see certain things. Here is the compassion of God nursing, God in Christ nursing, seeking to nurse a spark, the tiniest spark of belief into true saving faith. Human heart to human heart, human being to human being, voice to ears. It is a beautiful picture of the compassion of God and the human process of salvation. And I believe God is sovereign, and I believe in election. And I have seven tapes in a series on election to prove it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So if you don't believe that I believe that, then you don't know what I believe. So to believe it, get the tapes. <laughs> but this concern is so great. And if you're in that place today, where you, you feel like that smoking flax. You want to know what the fl smoking flax is? They have over there, you still see them in certain places, especially in gift shops in Israel, these little tiny... Um, they're made out of uh, pottery, these little lamps. They're very shallow. It looks like a squished pitcher. There's a little handle on it, it's squished, open, with a thing out here. And what they would do is put oil in there, and then they would put a little wick, what looks like the spout of a squished pitcher, and they would light it. And it was made of flax. And what would happen is, as it would burn for a while and draw up the oil, and the oil would burn, they would have to the thing would burn fairly clear, but then it would begin to get all smoky as it was burning down. So you'd have to put the lamp out and trim the wick so it could draw the oil up in a full way and burn brightly and clearly. So there was this process of trimming it so it could have a brighter, stronger flame. When God looks down at the earth and He sends Jesus Christ and He knows there will be those that have the tiniest, tiniest flame of belief, one of the great missions of Jesus, and that may be you, is to come to you and to trim up your heart, to do whatever is necessary to strip away the blindness, to strip away the hardness with further words to your heart, as it were, as he does here, that you might be able to be fanned into life and have a true saving faith. And in the end, it was, yes, God who drew you and saved you. And it was his work in your heart that gave you the faith. But we see that in very detailed operation right here in this exchange between Jesus and this crowd. Spurgeon once wrote on this subject, he said, It is written, When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Certainly he can find it if anyone can. I like that. Certainly he can find it if anyone can. He has a very quick eye for faith. He deals with us as we used to do with a spark and the tinder in the days before they had the matchbooks. Spurgeon, they had the little things where you just got the spark going and then you would get the match going. And he says that's the way it is. When our Lord sees a tiny speck of faith in a man's heart, though it be quite insufficient of itself for salvation, yet he regards it with hope and watches over it if haply this little faith begins to grow into something more. If you feel like you are the little faith tonight, if you feel like you are the little tiny spark, if you say, oh, please, God, that's me, then just fully open your heart and tell the Lord and ask Him as the one who will specializes in fanning into a great flame, a little faith, to come and specialize in your heart. He will do that. His concern is so great. But you see here, if you go back to John eight thirty one, His condition is absolute. 
His condition is absolute. Though he pays specific attention to this condition, he does not leave it open-ended where it's kind of like, well, whatever in the end. Notice he says with a condition that is really absolute in terms of salvation. In John 8.31, Then Jesus said to those Jews that believed him, he said, if, notice, if, I took that word, I have it in my notes, I took it and I blew the font up several sizes bigger, out of proportion to the rest of the sentence, because it's an absolute condition. You should do that in your mind. It's almost like the if needs to go, if, 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 if. Your whole eternity hangs on that if. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. These others in the crowd have come to trust in me and believe on me in such a way they're going to now move in the direction of all that I teach. You need to begin to move in that direction as well. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So he doesn't leave any impression here that if they just stay where they are, they'll be okay in the end. He makes it very clear that they must move on to full trusting believing, relying upon faith in Him. It's got to go from the head down to the heart. He doesn't promise them the blessings of the Christian life to this condition. He is very, very clear. So He seeks to manifest the two kinds of belief. In His great infinite love, He draws out, He's seeking to draw out the saving faith. And if you notice His parables, He's always doing that with Judas to the very end. His parables, so many of them, reach straight out to Judas. That's the love of God seeks to draw out the saving faith, and then Jesus shows the blessedness of trusting in Him. If you're holding back from really trusting Him, if you're holding back from really saying, Lord, take my whole life, and you know it, but you can't stop coming, you can't stop listening, then you need to realize that Jesus keeps on talking here, and He begins to show the blessedness of coming all the way up to trust Him. Look at John 8.31 again. Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in my word... You are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He says here, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The first thing here is he's talking about, obviously, then a genuine relationship. My disciples indeed. That's a a very certain and specific category. Thus, you begin to realize, as I said to you, discipleship in the teaching of Jesus means salvation. In the kingdom of Christ, a real disciple is a real Christian. Jesus says to those that want heaven, He says, then pick up your cross and follow Me. And that's the only conclusion you can come to, as I said, if you read His teaching. When you look at verse 31 here, if you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed. Right here when He says indeed, the Greek word is alethos. It means truly, of a truth, in reality, or most certainly. That's the qualifying thing. Real disciple. There's such a thing as a real disciple. And he's saying that to those that are not disciples, that are those that are not going to heaven, discipleship means real salvation on the lips of Jesus in this passage specifically. If you were to say to me, how would you define discipleship? And there's endless definitions, endless seminars, endless things about it. To me, discipleship means simply remaining with Him. Remaining with Him. How do you know if someone is a disciple of Jesus? They remain with Him. 
He says, if you abide, you see it there? If you abide in my word, the Greek word translated abide is the word meno. It means to remain. It means to abide. In reference to a place, it means to sojourn there or to tarry there, to not depart from there. It means to continue to be present. It means also to be held and to be kept. That's a real disciple. There are so many that claim to be Christians, but there isn't this remaining element about them. A real disciple has a remaining element. Hold your thumb here and turn to another writing by John. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. He wrote this even later. I often think of how the years add so much meaning to truth that we carry with us in our hearts and that one of the elements of the truths of God's kingdom is that it takes on more meaning as time goes by. So you can read 1 John 2.19 and see that. Look at it with me. 1 John 2.19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For, what's the next word? If. I have that one blown up too. And I have it linked to my other one mentally. For if they had been of us. See, I think John is sitting there and he's writing. This is years and years later. And that if is still ringing in his head. But you see, now the years of experience have added so much more meaning to that if. Why? Because he has seen so many come and go that had no remaining element. If you abide in my word, if you remain, you verify the fact that you're real. And if you don't, you show that you aren't. It's really simple. And he could sit after all these years now and remember the Demases of the world, the Judases of the kingdom, the Simons of the kingdom. There were so many. I have seen so many right here where I stand. Seen them come and seen them go. Seen the flame seem to flare up and then it goes out altogether. John is thinking of those. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to have a remaining element about your life. And it's there because God has put it there. Go back to uh, John 8. He says, if you abide or remain, the next thing he says is in my word. Then Jesus said, John 8, 31, to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So here they are. They believe a lot of the words he said. He says, if you become immersed in my word and abide in it and remain in it, you're my disciples indeed. This is critical what he says here, because when he says my word, He's talking about the whole body of his teaching. In other words, when he says abiding in my word, he's talking about not just picking and choosing isolated statements to sort of take and apply to your life to help you. You'd be surprised how many of the self-help gurus of the world in the United States that go on the circuit, have their books, tapes, and so on. The positive thinkers out there teach how to sell more and things like that. And I've been through all of that. You'd be surprised how many things they teach. They're just basically stolen right out of the Bible, out of context. And it's truth 
that they take and apply to exercise your brain to a little more of the basic potential that God put there when he created man in his image. Really, they just rip off stuff from the Bible and make money off of it. I know, I've been there, I've sold those seminars, I've memorized those tapes, I've followed those gurus and hacked people into buildings to listen to them. And that was in a backslidden state of my Christian life, I might add. So I've been there and back, left a bad taste in my mouth. Anyway, you have here Jesus, and he says, if you continue in my word, he's saying, you take the whole body, the whole unity of what I have taught about myself, about who I am, about what I've taught about sin. Jesus taught more about hell than all the other writers of the New Testament taken and combined together. You take what I've taught you about the Father. You take what I've taught you about heaven. You take what I've taught you about real belief, inadequate belief, about real disciples, fake disciples, and you embrace the unity of what I am and what I have said of the kingdom of God, and you will show you are my disciples indeed. That's it. The reason that is so important is because it is so possible to just sit and listen and learn the things of the kingdom and pluck out the things you like that Jesus says and basically ignore the things you don't like. Like Thomas Jefferson, for example, comes to mind. Not in my notes, but comes to mind. You know the name? Thomas Jefferson, with great Christian founding fathers of our country. He was not a Christian. He had a Bible. Yes, he did. He read it all the time, all the time. And he also tore out all the parts that had any reference to miracles because the God of Thomas Jefferson, who was a deist like Benjamin Franklin, who is the author of God Helps Those Who Help Themselves, a non-biblical falsehood. So it was a gang of these deist guys. He believed in a non-miraculous God. What he did was he took the truths and he plucked out the things he liked and he ripped out the things he didn't like. In some cases, literally. He made his own Bible, in fact. That is so possible, and I warn you against it. Because what you can do is fashion a Christianity or fashion what becomes another religion, another gospel, based on plucked, hand-plucked truths that you have strung together to the exclusion of the rest of the truths. I was shocked the other day to read that Hannah Whitehall Smith, a great Christian writer who wrote about the joy in the Christian life, believed that in the end, everybody goes to heaven and nobody goes to hell. Nobody. Sorry, but you cannot read through the red in the Bible and come to that conclusion unless you just arbitrarily say, well, I don't like it. I'll take it out. Man, you're going to have cuttings all over the room with Jesus' stuff. Are there anything left? I was shocked to find that out. And yet so many good things to say about the Christian life. Well, you see, that's a self-styled religion. You don't want to do that. And Jesus is saying that to the people in front of him. They had already done it with the Old Testament, and now they were trying to do it with him. And he's saying, don't do it. You have to take my word, the whole body of my teaching. Discipleship means real salvation. Discipleship means remaining with him. Let me add in a thought here, lest I forget it. I think it's critical, especially some, to some of you older Christians. You can look at this, and if we were to stop right here, you could go away from here and say, well, I need to really abide in His Word. I've got to get back in His Word. I've got to read it, and then I've got to apply it. That's it. I, I need to have that element of the disciple indeed. If you do that, and if you have done it, and that's where it ends, your Christian life can become this endless treadmill grind. You know, how many of you have ever had that hamster that your kid brought home for a day? <laughs> it runs on that little treadmill, you know, and just that's his life. That little rat in there, he just, 
you know. He never goes anywhere. He never leaves the cage. He just runs. You think that poor guy, what a life. But you know something, if you begin to look at the Christian life in the sense of, okay, I got to continue in his word. I got to learn more and I got to do more. I got to learn more and I have to do more. I need to learn more and I have to do more. After a while, you become that little thing running on that treadmill. Got to learn more. Got to do more. I understand. Okay. Got to apply now. Understand. Got to apply now. Understand. Got to apply now. And after a while, you fall over. And you lay there for quite some time. And you begin to wonder. I don't want you to get caught there. And if you're there right now, I pray God will liberate you this day. Because, you see, when he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. It isn't to be an endless grind of learning the word and trying to apply. It's to be an endless adventure of learning. Abiding in his word. Learning as years go by, as I said, the deep riches that have been there all along. And then being ushered into the richness of that truth in your own life. Of learning more of the richness of God and learning to enjoy Him more. It's abiding in the truth, knowing the goodness of the truth. Knowing what it does to your heart. Knowing the freedom it brings. As deception is washed away with truth. And you see clearly, life takes on a different perspective. Do you see the difference? Boy, if I just stop right here, I'd be okay, I think. Because that is a great snare that you can fall into. It should be a great adventure, not of an endless grind of learning and doing. And and we do that. We grow and we get better and we're more obedient. But an endless adventure of learning and loving. That's it. An endless adventure of learning and loving. And so discipleship means real salvation and discipleship means remaining with Him. And discipleship here means real liberation. The truth makes you free. But i got to go on now. Let's go from the progression to the pretense. In John 8.33, they answered him and they said, We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Look at this. It's interesting. They say, We have always been free. Jesus effectively says, You have always been bound. They're going back and forth here. We have always been free. They said, We are Abraham's descendants. They felt because they were Abraham's descendants and Jews that all Jews were going to heaven. All Jews had the light that came from God. And they said, we've never been in bondage to anyone. Why do we need to be made free? The security that they put in being related to Abraham was so obsessive as to blind them to just blatant realities. As they stand there and they say, we've never been in bondage to any man, the flag is flying on the Roman fortress right behind them. They are under Roman bondage as they speak, and they don't see it. It never comes to mind. The Assyrians drove them into bondage in the Old Testament. The Babylonians swept them into bondage in the Old Testament. But they they can't see it. They're blind to it. The marching feet of the soldiers, I mean, it was all around them. We have always been free. He says, you have always been bound. And he basically bypasses their whole thought and he gets to their real need and he says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. He's saying, I'm talking about the slavery of your heart. If you commit sin, you're a slave of sin. You're all sinners, so you're all slaves. That's the point. And this is such a radical statement to contemplate because what it says, it it may in fact be one of the most 
eye-opening, liberating statements that Jesus makes anywhere. Because that is the very opposite thought that we have when we sin. That's the opposite of the thought that we would have when we sin. You never think to yourself, I can't wait to do this so I can grovel some more before the devil and sin. I can't wait to do this so it can ruin me further. You don't think to yourself, if I do this, I'm going to be a slave of it. You think it's an exercise of freedom, that's why you do it. Basically what we think sin is, a great exercise of freedom. I want to move on to the next category, and I'm going to talk about that just a moment more. The promise of freedom. We've seen the progression, the pretense. They said they have it, they didn't. They were all slaves. He was talking about making them free from their slavery of sin. And his promise is, he's working off the analogy now of the slave. His promise is so great because it has security in it for their life now and for eternity future. See, he took this analogy of the slave here, and in verse 35 he said, A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. He's showing them something every person in that society knew. If you were a son in the house, in the Roman culture especially, you had full security. Once a son, always a son. That kind of thing. That even comes out in the teaching of the prodigal son. When he's at his worst, he's been with prostitutes, he's blown his money, he's been gambling. He, one day he wakes up eating pig food. He's living on a farm with pigs in the pigsty. That's how warped he was. And he wakes up one morning and he says, but I'm still my father's child. I'll arise and I'll go to my father's house. Once a son, always a son. The great security in that. But for a slave, there was no security. If you got the master upset, he could get rid of you. He could sell you off. He could use you for a while and get rid of you. He could move you from this to that, from this place to that place. In the Roman world, if a slave displeased you, you had full rights over a slave like all the other tools that you owned. Just as you could discard any tool you got tired of, you could kill a slave and there was no consequence because he was just a tool, he was your property. There was no security in being a slave. Least of all is there any kind of security in being a slave to sin. You don't ever know where it's going to take you. Jesus is saying, I want to free you. I want to free you. Well, to someone in that world that keyed up the whole thing of being a slave and the master sets you free and he adopts you, there was a whole society to testify to that thought. But he's saying, I want to free you in such a way you will be free indeed. And only I can give you this kind of freedom. It's freedom from the slavery to your own sin. It's effectively what he said to the woman in adultery. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Freedom. And if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And it's the freedom to know God that's in his promise here. There's security here that he will free you. He will keep you. He will do it. But the freedom is to know God. And we need to see it because... With all the strange doctrines that have come around, with all the strange thoughts we have as human beings, please articulate today, this is not freedom to do what you please. It's the freedom to do what He pleases. The freedom to do what pleases Him. See, I said to you a moment ago that when we sin, follow me on this, when we sin, we so often do it consciously thinking we're exercising our own freedom as a human being. And whenever we feel like God wants to withhold sin from us. Admit it. We have all been there where we felt like this isn't fair. You're just a big taskmaster in a heavenly sky that wants to rob me of all my fun. This isn't fair. And often in our hearts when we go off and sin anyway, then we're just saying, I'm going to be free no matter what, right? 
So we go off to do it. And what happens is that in this great exercise to assert our own freedom to do as we please, we end up in a greater bondage than we've ever been in before. The assertion of our freedom often leads us to our greatest bondage. Think about it. That's what Jesus said. Commit sin, you're a slave of sin. Think about how many liberation movements we've had in our world in recent years. Ask yourself how many have led to greater liberation. Most of the liberation movements have led to some kind of greater bondage. And I have much to say about all those movements, but I will not say, that, say it now. It's a lot greater bondage. The assertion of your own freedom has led to heroin addiction, cocaine addiction, alcohol addiction, all kinds of habits and addictions. We are not set free to say, well, I'm saved by grace, I'm going to heaven, and now I'm going to pick and choose and pluck some truth and add some sin and a little pleasure here and a little pleasure there and do what we please. We are set free, get this, from the unnatural realm of sin and darkness. We're set free from what is unnatural to those created in the image of God. Free now to come back into what He intended for those created in His image from the beginning. Free now to begin to taste and see the Lord as good. Free to begin to hold out our cup until He fills it to overflowing. Free to come in weakness and find strength as He fills our hearts with joy. Free to know that there's more truth to understand. Free to study it. Free to tap into its richness. And free to be invigorated by that truth and strengthened by that truth. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He frees us. And the freedom is from this entire worldly system around us. And it is a progress of sanctification. And there is day-by-day change. But there is a sense also in which when you come to Christ and your eyes are open, once I was blind, now I see, said the man healed by Jesus. There is a sense in which all of a sudden the blinders are lifted and you see darkness and light. And you wonder how you could have ever been so totally blind to the way of the world your whole life, and you now know you can never be blind to that again. And that is the truth that makes you free. And as God adds to that truth, as you abide in His truth, and He adds to your understanding, and it broadens and it deepens, it becomes the abundant life. We are set free from that unnatural realm of sin and darkness to know God and to know life as He intended us to know it when He created us in His own image. You know this freedom that only He can give. He whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. And what a liberation He brings. The foundation He lays as He sets you on grace, the great rock of His grace, the rock of ages, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness for your sin that is full. Day by day it is there applied to your failures to fill the gaps so that as you come with a heart that embraces the fullness of His Word, sorry for your sin, repentive of your sin, He is there cleansing, constantly cleansing and renewing. So it isn't this, got to learn more, got to do more, got to learn more, got to do more. I hate this, I hate this more and more. The more I learn, the more I do, the more I hate it. But, oh God, I love you. And the more I know of you, the more I love of you. And the more you love me, the more I love you. And the more my mind is filled with your light, the more I see how dark it is out there, and the more I long to come out of the darkness deep into the light with you.
he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Let him free you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Gospel of John. Thank you, Lord, for this time together with you. Lord, as we come to the end of this study, there are many things here to take with us. We pray, God, that you, Lord, by your Spirit would go with us, that you, Lord, would strengthen us, that you, Lord, would renew us, that we could go and enjoy this relationship with you and be able to know this is the freedom only the Son of God can bring and rejoice in the fact that we that truly know you are remaining in you because you have kept us. We will give you all the glory for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.